And to the congregation this morning, I say good morning to you. It is wonderful to be with you all. I see several familiar and beloved faces here at Stone Church of Willow Glen. And an uh, additional thanks to Sammy for uh, inviting me to come preach and give the word on this day. Let us listen now for the word of God coming from the book of Corinthians. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 through 31. Listen now. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. It just gets more heady, so hang in with me. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ in the power of of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers, sisters, and siblings. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. God is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The word of God. Now, I want to, to since we're not in a hyper-Christian context, given we have amazing, wonderful guests this morning, I want to clarify, for the sake of those who aren't familiar with the Christian texts, that the first Corinthians, it's not, because it can be read or understood as anti-Semitic, if not read correctly, right? And so I, I want to acknowledge that and just say that when they're talking about Jews and Greeks, what they're talking about is a difference in understanding of messianic thought, right? For people for whom the way of Christ was not salvific or did not necessarily follow those things. But I, given the sensitivity of the particular times that we are living in, think it is important that if anybody here is of Jewish descent or practicing, that we love you and we're so glad that you are here, but I want to acknowledge that because I'm sensitive to it. Now, for the word. So a little bit about me. So you know the context that I'm coming from this morning. I first want you all to pat yourselves on the back, literally, please. I'm gonna do this. Y'all too, yep, good. And I want you all to pat yourselves on the back for two reasons. One, when we talk about issues of racial apartheid, it's never easy and it's always a little bit personal for everybody. So I want to acknowledge that. Two, I also want you to acknowledge how brave it is that you're in this space inviting me to, to talk about this and to acknowledge the good work that you all have done. 
And so this sermon came about because I'm a cradle Presbyterian, spent, grew up in an African-American Presbyterian church right out, well, in Chicago, still going to this day. And then the churches that raised me outside of those elementary school years before third grade were all predominantly white churches in the suburbs. And so what I've found in the churches that I've served, all predominantly white churches, either in urban settings or the suburbs. And so what I've found as we talk about these issues of racial apartheid and racism is that oftentimes I realize we do not know our white ancestors who have always, there are many who have always been allies in fighting for racial justice and equality. And I began to think and wonder how white supremacy has suppressed folks who are trying to break out of the system and who don't look like me. Everybody knows I'm okay, but how many here have ever heard of the name Lillian Smith? Raise your hand. And that's not an accident. You didn't, the reason why you don't know about Lillian Smith is because white supremacy has not allowed for our white ancestors' voice and work to be heard. And so I, I'm doing this this morning in the spirit of joy, and I'm also doing this this morning in the spirit of hoping that you can see yourself in this movement, knowing that you've always been there, and part of the way this movement tries to defeat people is to say that you've never, that white people have never done this work, which is just not true. Y'all with me? Okay, so for people of color, I want you to strap in and hold on and sit tight, because this is gonna be a little narrative that you already know. And <laughs> or maybe you don't, but I just wanna acknowledge the differences of experiences, because as we talk about this, it's true. And the ultimate truth is we are all harmed by racial apartheid. How the harms look is different, but we are all harmed and we are all socialized to participate in racial apartheid, okay? With that, let us begin. This morning, an article came out by two University of Ohio professors, one, um, an economist, saying that the wealth gap, if we look at, and specifically at this moment, I'm talking about African-Americans and, and uh, whites, um, but that the wealth gap has been maintained for the past 50 years to this day. This article came out fresh, hot off the press this morning. And so the battles that we are fighting are old. And I would argue that they're anti-Christological, anti-Christological, anti-Christ, meaning that which is, in fact, not of Christ, but claims to be of Christ. And so the racial apartheid in this country, as we know, has its foundations first and the economic resources of this country. That's why I think that wealth gap that we note is so important, because this apartheid, where did it come from? It came from the desire of wealth and growth, right? Like, we're sitting, this, this edifice, this beautiful building, is on a lonely land, and as we know in our country, how we've built wealth first came through taking and, and the erasure of the indigenous people, and then through the kidnapping and capturing of bodies for chattel slavery. It'll get easier, I promise. <laughs> but I think we need to acknowledge this as we talk about it, because this history comes from somewhere, and we have to stop it. And if we want to hit it at the root, then we need to name the things that make us uncomfortable and believe that we can change. So before I begin, do you actually believe that we can make change? Say yes. Yes. Well, I don't need to say it twice. That's beautiful. All right. So <laughs> when we close the wealth gap in this country, we will also be closing and, and significantly ending a major part of racial apartheid. So sometimes if it's hard for you to think about race, but it's easier for you to think about the economy, they're two, they're, they're one and the same. 
It's what angle are you taking? And so now that I've highlighted how far we have yet to go, we're still 50 years behind. And as you all know, being a church in Silicon Valley, as things are automating, this, this gap is not going to slow down if we do not catch it within a finite amount of time, within about a decade. It will increase and it will be permanent because of the way automation and artificial intelligence works. And so we are kind of hitting an end of our, end of our rope, in a sense, uh, because some of the practices that are parents and some of y'all might have come from working class families and in the middle of the, the rural places where your grandma, grandpa, or mom knew how to fedangle something or break something up so that way you could have a lot more later or get an odd job here or an odd job there. But as things are becoming more automated on our cell phones, the same structures, the same practices that we have used to navigate around processes of oppression are slowly becoming obsolete and no longer applicable because the systems have changed so much. Are y'all with me? All right. Which means we have to find out new ways to fight old systems. Old systems that we're tired of. Y'all tired? I'm tired. Yeah, I know you're tired. Please. So, <laughs> so I want to talk about the power of Lillian Smith and who she is. So, we heard a little bit about Lillian Smith having been this woman who came out of Florida, y'all. No offense, anybody came from Florida, but she came out of Florida. That's not nothing, right? A Methodist woman born and raised in the Methodist church, and she began throughout her lifetime to leave the church. And she began to leave the church, not because she didn't believe in God, but she found a dissonance between the church's teachings of the love in God and the church's behavior towards people. And I wonder at a particular time, the pews are full this Sunday, which is gorgeous and beautiful and wonderful. I don't know what it looks like every Sunday. But as we're looking at this shift in the United States culture of people not coming towards institutional religions because they hear religions talking about one thing but behaving another, I wonder if we could find parallels with Lillian's story. So while she was over uh, in China, and finding the discrepancy between how uh, Chinese, Chinese people were being treated and African Americans, she could no longer, having had the experience, now us Presbyterians were pretty intellectual people, are we not? We were pretty heady. Sometimes it's, we're like, we love the Holy Spirit as long as she is decent and in order, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? <laughs> we do, we do, and we can't control the Spirit, and it drives us, the dissonance drives us crazy. And we try to just put it in a committee, in a meeting, and a, it's, <laughs> you know, we create a process around it that'll take forever, but then we're satisfied, and for the most part. And so I want us to sit in the unknown and the discomfort, because that's what Lillian did. She sat in the unknown and the discomfort, having been a closeted woman in Florida, moving to Georgia in her middle, in her, after she came back from, from China with a partner who she kept in the closet the entire time, but all y'all know, if you come from a small town or you're just in regular communities that you know, that folks knew, that her lifetime partner was this wonderful woman and that they were doing good work in the world. And so Lillian, because of the experience that she had, made a choice. She could have 
continued the way she was socialized in the United States, in Florida, of all places especially. She could have continued to say, well, I've been taught that this is sort of wrong. It doesn't sit well with me, but I'm going to keep on keeping on because it's no skin off my back, really. I mean, it's hard to look at, it's stomach, but I can live a good life. I can be unbothered if I keep on keeping the way I am. It sucks. I'm going to do my part, but for the most part, that's a little too much for me. It's a little too much for me to take on. Instead, she said, I cannot live as a person who's grown up as a person of faith. I cannot live in this world and move through this world having seen what I've seen and experienced what I experienced and not fight for it and bring it back home. And I want you to know that Lillian is all of our ancestors. She's your stock. And so when y'all get home or come to the adult study, I want you to Google Lillian Smith. So she wrote two books of note that was mentioned. One of them, uh, Strange Fruit, and she wrote that book before the Billie Holiday song came out. So she was ahead of her time in that way, talking about some of the dissonance that she experienced in the South. And then the second book, which I think is more pertinent for today, because I had one member in my former congregation who knew of Lillian Smith, and that's how I found out. And it gave her, it gave her food for the journey during the Civil Rights Movement because she said, I can see myself. I've been here before as a white woman. She was straight, but she's like, I, I can see myself in Lillian Daniels. And so she told me about the book, Killers of the Dream. And her book, Killers of the Dream, was written in the 50s, and it was a book about the dissonance that she experienced as a white woman growing up in the South, having to love God and love neighbor, but knowing that her parents trained her to only love some neighbors and that some people were really only made in the image of God, and what that did to her understanding of her identity and her socio-psychological profile. Now, I'm imagining Nobody in here can relate to that. I mean, in some ways, I'm sharing this because I'm sharing something that I can't, y'all can relate to in a way better than I can, right? The majority of you all in here, because I'm coming from a different background and experience. And so I find Lillian fascinating because her story has helped me have better compassion for those, uh, for those who are white. Yeah, it's real, <laughs> right? And, and what Lillian does throughout her lifetime, the KKK, as we'll talk about it a little later, but the KKK comes and burns down her home because of the work that she's doing. She winds up getting cancer, and, and, and due to the work that she's doing, she's not making much money, so she's trying to give and, and, and get involved in these movements and is an, unable to do so in a way that is uh, satisfactory to her. So she loses everything in a very similar way that people of color are losing alongside her in the South. Are y'all with me? Now she's become a fool for God's love in the world. And because she's become a fool, she also experiences the exact same things that foolish people do. Now here's where my challenge comes to you all this morning. Are you willing to be fools at this particular time in history with the many apartheids that we face? Are you willing to be fools and to lose some things in order to gain? Some of y'all are like, I don't know if I want to gain heaven right now. But, but truly, in order to gain the Christian love that you have spent your entire life going into church to cultivate. Resurrection in this life. I'm not just talking about when you cross the River Jordan by and by. 
but are you willing to be a fool? And let me talk a little bit about foolery. Some of y'all in here have, have left jobs and gone on and done other things. And I'm sure folks look at you and said, what are you doing? You don't know anything about this particular subject, but you left and you went because God placed a call on your heart and you listened and your experience in life changed. If we look at modern neurological science today, because I don't think science and religion are anti, you know, are against one another. I actually think they really complement each other and science is finally catching up to like 5,000 years of good stuff. Right? If we combine most of the world's religions that have been put, organized, and spiritualities have been organized into religions and, and made as disciplines. Y'all with me? Right? So science is now finally catching up to the power of prayer, to the power of meditation. They're like, this is, we have facts now, it exists. Right? And so science is now saying Dr. Joe Dispenza has done a lot of work on research and mapping brains during states of uh, what we would call centering prayer meditation and folks letting themselves go. And what he has found is what was a lot in our, in our, mostly our epistles is true, if you needed a little extra proof being good Presbyterians. And that is what we believe we actually embody in, and it is how we create our realities. So what you believe, what you think, and all of us have somewhere between 50 to 70,000 thoughts a day. We recycle and repeat 90% of those thoughts. So that means when it comes to racial apartheid in America, what thoughts are we repeating? What programs are we consistently running in our brains that are creating the same realities and outcomes that are creating a 50-year wage gap? Y'all with me? So how do we look like fools and do what Christ has told us to do, or in many of the prophets, right? To repent, metanoia, to transform, to transfigure, to actually change. Like we actually cannot be the same person as we were the day before. And so what this research is showing is in order for human beings to change, to create new realities and new possibilities, that they literally have to create new habits, that they literally have to create new personalities. Y'all have to be a new person, which is what Jesus has been trying to tell you forever. Right? In Christ you are made a... Okay. I know, I know sometimes Prezi's in the Bible is rough, but in Christ, the word is new. In Christ we are made a... New. Right. In Christ, we are made anew. But this is, I need you to really understand now, this really is literal, and now we have proof in a way that, that, that goes beyond our faith. Now we have empirical scientific evidence. And so my question is, do you believe that this change can happen? And I'm, I'm going to keep this rhetorical, because I don't want you to say yes. I want you to do yes. Right? Like, do you believe that this change is actually possible? And what are the things in your life that you need to change that will make you look like a holy fool? What are the practices? And this is something that will take time, y'all. It takes folks who like meditate for his particular program about a year. So what will you all do at this crucial time in our country's history, by the way? Our crucial time in the history of humanity with technology. This crucial time in the history of, of the planet. I'm looking at y'all little folks and, and how do I help to preserve what you're, what you're going to experience, right? Do y'all know regular seasons? Genuine question. Have you, have you had the experience of normative seasons? 
No. Some say yes, some say no. That's a whole other different paradigm than most of you all sitting here who could predict the seasons, right? So I'm switching over to conversational preaching. So if y'all were looking for a good black homiletic, like I'm, I'm changing it up because it just it hits people differently these days. It does. It does. Speech is changing. Speech is changing. How we listen to one another changes. It's moving conversational. And so my question, my homework for you, I like to give homework, spiritual homework, because otherwise, why am I up here preaching? Is for you to make one change each day that is different, that is different in, in terms of racial apartheid to what you have done the other day. And what I mean by that is, if you can't even identify it, well then, <laughs> well then I want you to start working on identifying thoughts that come into your head that might not agree with who you are, but you have been socialized to believe and to think. Are you with me? Now this takes work. I mean, it sounds very simple, it sounds childish, but it actually takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of discipline. And I want you to do this because when you're doing this, you're literally creating a new reality. And as Christians, our new reality is to participate in the ever ongoing inbreaking of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And in order to do that, as comfortable as those pews may be, we have to be out into the world and, and doing it. And so I need you all to follow in the ways of Lillian Smith, who had an experience that kind of disembodied her from the, and, and made her recognize the dissonance between uh, racial apartheid in the United States and how our Christian missionaries did it in China. And she changed the way she functioned her entire life. And we think that she didn't make a change. But the truth is, her work as of the past two years has slowly made a resurgence as scholars who are, there's now white studies, which just makes sense. I don't know why I wasn't there to begin with. You know, we have black studies, we have Latina studies. We should have white studies, right? And yes, y'all want you to say yes to that one. Yes, we should, we should. Because what excludes different people groups, right? Like, what is the norm, what is the standard? And so, and for folks who are studying, sociologists who are studying this, they're bringing up her work as foundational in order to help break racial apartheid in America. And so I want you to, to, to embody these things because you actually aren't doing this work alone. You're not trailblazing. That's something that pastorally I've noticed in Austin, Texas, in Chicago, here in Palo Alto, that folks have thought that, you know, maybe, you know, they're active in the civil rights movement, but they have not seen other folks who look like them. Y'all know about MLK. You know about Rosa Parks, right? You know about W.E.B. Du Bois, right? But so few folks know know about our white ancestors who have been doing this work. So start with Lillian Smith, because you're not doing this work alone, right? And her work has been silenced because whiteness, white supremacy, racial apartheid, uh, does not want you to know these truths, because when you know these truths, then the system becomes undone. And so these systems are realities that we create and repeat. We don't have to repeat them. We don't have to recreate them, but we are conditioned. The program that America runs on is, is not Duncan, it's apartheid. And so how do we begin, especially at this time in our history where folks are so divided, especially this time in the area that we live in where we have tent cities, we have slums in the United States, mostly in California. How do we change what we're doing? 
so that way we change what we're being and alter the realities for futures for, for, for y'all, but honestly for us too. Every, we put so much on the youth these days. It's not all their burden. We create the world in which they live. So I will, I will end with this. The four-minute mile, which when it was broken, after it was broken, everybody thought you couldn't break a four-minute mile. After the person broke the four-minute mile, there were four-minute miles popping out like nobody's business. It's now <laughs> kind of a standard and a norm. You're actually not considered a fast uh, miler if you, if you can go under four minutes. And so I, want, I challenge this community to do the equivalent of a four-minute mile when it comes to racial apartheid and the changes that you're making. When you see somebody else do it, my hope is the power of your ancestor, the power of our ancestor, Lillian Smith, is in some ways she broke the four-minute mile in the 1930s, right? Like, think about it. She broke a racial apartheid four-minute mile, so to speak, in the 1930s, and we're, we're still fighting that mile today. So it is possible. My question is, are you willing to be a fool? Are you willing to lose? These days, your house probably is not going to get burned, especially in California, right? So I want you to think about the loss that you will have. You're going to have loss. But the gain that you will have, the peace of mind that you have, the person that you will become when you change and create, create space for other people in the world. So I want you, I will end with a repeat after me. I, I make a covenant. I'll stop you right there because Presbyterians, well, what covenant am I making? What's in this contract? <laughs> You're going to make a covenant to change one part of yourself every single day when it comes to race. All right, make a covenant to change one behavior every day when it comes to race. I promise to be uncomfortable knowing God has me, knowing I am following the Holy Spirit, and knowing that change is a fight. Amen.